Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. On March 1st, we will be creating separate channels for our Project MedTech podcast and our MedTech Money podcast. So if you are a fan of both podcasts, please search Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to both channels or just go to our website. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lean RAQA. Michelle Lott and the Lean team help clients recognize regulatory and quality issues aren't a burden. They are strategic advantages when used properly. These experts strip away misdirected activities so you can focus on what really matters, winning in the marketplace. Check them out at leanraqa.com. I also want to apologize for some difficulties for this episode. I do have a one-year-old at home, and she was not in a good mood during this episode. I was able to take out some of her trying to participate on the podcast, but not all. So I apologize for this, but the content that was produced by Adam here was too good not to share. In this episode, our guest, Adam Stedman, and I discuss when to engage a CRO, defining what a CRO really is, understanding how CROs and clinical trials work from a cost perspective, why the switch out of the CRO space for Adam, what smart trial is working on and how it differs, hybrid and decentralized clinical trials, the types of data you want to generate and collect during a clinical trial, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Adam Stedman. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future of what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dre. Yeah. So uh, before we jump in, if you could just give the listeners a little bit of background of, of who you are and your, your, your background in the device space, that'd be great. Sure. Thank you very much. So my name is Adam Stedman. I work for an organization now called Smart Trial, where I'm the chief commercial officer for Americas. Um, I've been in the clinical trials industry for the last 15 years. Five of the most recent years were with a, a major global um, clinical research organization as the global head of medical device and diagnostic clinical studies. Um, so operational responsibility and and effectively business development responsibility to some degree as well um, for conducting studies both in the diagnostic and device spaces um, throughout the world in various countries in Asia and Europe and the US. Awesome. Um, so before we talk about uh, uh, your, your new position at Smart Trial, when, when did you make the move to Smart Trial? So I joined Smart Trial 1st of December. So okay. very new, um, but it's been a, a great ride so far. I've got to tell you that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's. I think you know, on our pre-call, it was funny because I had come from a, a CRO uh, as well in the med tech space that oftentimes competed against the one uh, you were at, and and then here we both were, you know, leaving our current posts and and heading out and doing something new. So um, I always thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, this is a very small industry. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah, it, it really is. Um, and I think that's what I like about med tech as maybe yeah. opposed to, to biotech or pharma. Um, 
so you know while we're on the cro uh topic um something i get from startups a lot is you know as a startup company you know how do i know when i'm ready for a cro or if i need a cro um because i think it's you know it's a topic that comes up frequently. I mean, most most startups are going to need to collect clinical data at some point in time, especially with the new regulations and just from a marketing standpoint. So from, from, from your side of things, how do you address that question? If I'm a startup and I come to you and say, you know, hey, uh, uh, Adam, you know, do I need to work with the CRO on this or, or, or not? Sure. Um, I think there's, there's, there are so many aspects to that question. It's obviously not going to be a, a simple question to answer. But I think right. the first things to think about, firstly, is being inward-looking as a, as a device manufacturer and saying, well, what competencies do I have? Very often, device manufacturers, startups, come from a um, scientific or academic background. Um, maybe the doctors, whatever it happens to be, they come up with a fantastic idea. Really, you know, they've been struggling with trying to do a procedure for years. And now they've thought, just by doing that, I can just make that so much easier for everybody who's doing this procedure. The first thing they have to understand is what don't they have? What don't they understand? And more, more importantly, the, the classic question is always, what don't you? what is it that you don't know that you don't know? And that's the biggest problem because a lot of people think that they know the area, they know the space, but they don't. So, you know, when you look at, at whether you should work with a CRO or not, first of all, you need to define what a CRO is. Um, Many, many people have the belief that a CRO is any kind of contract organization working in the space. And, and in its broadest form, that's, that's what a CRO is. But to go to a clinical site that can help you with some investigational work, you know, early on sort of discovery type work, and consider that as being a CRO is not the same thing as going to a multidisciplinary CRO that provides all of the services from medical safety to statistics, data management, site startup, all the regulatory services. Um, you know, there's there's a big difference between that single site that maybe the expertise, have the expertise in using the device or testing the device with a patient and and what are the more traditional largest heroes that have, you know, the full range of services that they can, they can provide and support studies with. So that's the first thing to be thinking about. How much do you have of that? You can then look at it and say, well, if I'm going to use a CRO, that's quite a big investment because using CROs, even if you're using small CROs, is going to be a more expensive proposition sometimes than doing it yourself. Most times it would be if you're using the bigger CROs, but there are significant benefits to that. Do you need to every time? Not always. But, you know, realistically, if you know that your study is going to have to be conducted in five countries, doing that yourself is really hard. Um, We've come across, I've come across in my time, many models where you have companies that are sort of put together with a, a bunch of consultants. Now, I don't mean that badly at all, but when you've got a consultant in Germany helping you on clinical um, requirements, you've got a consultant, you've got a couple of CRAs, one who's contracting for you in, in Poland, one who's contracting for you in Hungary. You've got some project management staff in the USA. And then you've got a couple of subject matter experts. You've got some preclinical expertise coming in from, from a consultant here. You've got some specialist um, consultancy in maybe the, um, the data aspects of your device or something like that. 
you can put things together and do trials that way. But what we found is when you, when you get too many consultants, there's too much competing with each other. There's too much fighting for territory. There's not a harmonious way of working together. And when you start getting to that kind of situation, that is definitely time to be saying, I actually should have a CRO doing this for me. And maybe being strategic with the CRO, maybe you don't get the CRO to do every service for you because sometimes CROs may not be the most cost efficient. If you said you wanted a medical director from a CRO, but you yourself are a phys physician, because a medical doctor is going to have perhaps 24-7 availability, which means you've got a team of three of them on call, you've got to train them all, you're paying very high rates, hourly rates for doctors. Um, you know, you might find that taking that one service out and not using a CRO for it, but resourcing that internally may be a way more cost-efficient way of doing it. But then you might also look at it and say, well, we're a bunch of engineers. We don't have a doctor amongst us. There's absolutely no ways we can do medical monitoring. And therefore, we have to bring that service in. So, you know, I think it, it's a situation that, that depends very much for every company. <clears throat> I don't think there's a rule that applies to all. There's, there's such a range of complexities. What I would say is, generally speaking, when you've got less complex um, devices, if you've got class one or class two A, um, yeah. Uh, the European designation, but if you've got those lower class devices, you probably don't need a CRO unless you're really constrained in terms of your own um, availability of, of staff and time and so forth. Um, but you need to be well funded to be able to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Adam, I love that feedback. I mean, I think it's a lot of times people look for simple answers, right? And, and, and they get frustrated when the first answer, the first way I answer their question is, well, it depends, right? Um, but, but understanding the thought process and the different drivers that help make that decision, that's, that's the secret sauce, right? That's, that's where startups sure. uh, need, to, need to focus is, is what should they be taking into account for you know in order to to get to that answer um and and i think you're spot on i mean you know i've been in the cro space with with two different companies um and it's kind of the same same conversations with with startups right i mean at some point depending on your trial complexity it it does or does not make sense um and that's just it it, it you know that's it is what it is right um if if and I think that class one, class two, two A, um, you know, that that's a pretty good uh, indicator of whether you're going to need a CRO support or not. We get companies reach all the time, right? And it's like, look, that's just way too small <laughs> for for us to take on, um, and it'd be better suited somewhere else. So um, I really liked your thought there. I thought that was very helpful. Um, what about tips on, you know, how to work with a CRO? Because um, there's 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 a lot there as well, um, especially when you're talking about one to five to ten million dollar studies. You know how how do you, from my perspective, right? Th there's a lot of um, there's a lot of money that could be saved if the companies maybe worked better together, right? Oh, yeah. So no so, so yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So I think I think the first thing, and again, this comes goes back to, you know, we've all got the odd experiences in the background that are like still gnawing away at us and, and causing some angst. Um, but I think I think the first thing, the absolutely without any shadow of a doubt, most important thing is to get alignment between the two organisations. 
And that alignment um, is very much a case of, it, it's not just the, the regulatory transfer of responsibilities or the Toro that we talk about, where you know, you've got a document that says this function is done by this organization, this function is done by the manufacturer, etc. cetera. Um, that's, that's, that's very granular from a regulatory perspective. It's the spirit and understanding of it between the leadership of both organizations that really counts. You know, handing over the full responsibility for the trial to a CRO is fine, so long as you're prepared to let them do it. And what we found, what I found in the past is that there are situations where CROs will um, will take on, on work for a manufacturer. Um, they're theoretically given full reign to run the trial, but then there's endless interference, um, second guessing of the, of the of the work that's being done. There's challenges to why things are done in certain ways. There's a lack of understanding that, you know, this is a very regulated industry. We all work to SOPs, we all work to work instructions. We have to make sure we follow this. And then, you, you know, there are regulations like GDPR that, that complicate the way we approach investigators and things like that. Um, and, you know, there, there are some manufacturers that, that won't leave the CRO to do the job that CRO has been asked to do. Um, on the other hand, you also get situations where it's kind of the other way around, where you get um, CRO didn't bid something and the manufacturer doesn't know that it's it needs to be done. So what's happened is the manufacturer comes along and says, I want you to do this. Can you, you know, give me a price for it? And the, the CRO gives them a $2 million price tag for it. Then the manufacturer comes back and says, well, what can you do to get the price down to one and a half million? Because that's my budget. So the CRO does that. How do they do that? They don't discount it. They generally take services up. Well, we won't do safety for you. We won't do medical monitoring for you. Well, we can get the price down to where you want. But then when you're starting to execute that study and find that, well, hold on, you took the services out, but I don't know how to do them, so how are we going to get them done? That kind of situation comes about. Um, and I think the other thing is, is naivety. Um, I had a, a specific situation with a sponsor. And I, I don't blame the sponsor for this for for one second, this was a genuine mistake, but it was a, an organization where they'd asked us to get our price down to what they could afford. We got the price down there. And then as time went by, they, they it was a unique product. It's the first time in the market of anything even close to this. Um, nobody could predict the enrollment. And they came to us and said, but we thought this was a fixed price contract. And you know, from a CRO's perspective, we said, well, how can it be fixed price? We have You've never had a product of this nature in the market. Nobody could have predicted what the enrollment would be. We gave you assumptions and said, if the enrollment is this rate and you have this many physicians and this many patients, that's what we can do. And that's the parameters we gave them. And they said, well, we thought this was like building a house. You get a price for it, you contract the price, and then you deliver it. And I said, you know, the, the answer that I had to provide at the time was, well, you can count the number of bricks that you use when you build a house. You've got a quantity surveyor who can calculate exactly what you're going to need. You do not have the luxury of doing that when you're doing clinical trials. You can't, you can't predict the unknown. You can manage against it, you can mitigate it, but you can't, you'll never expect your CRO to take responsibility for risks that they don't have control of. And that's the right. problem. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's great insight. And I think that's something that, um, you know, every 
CRO sees and every uh, med tech company sees as well. I think the other big thing for me that I always saw was, you know, you, you have you have, you know, company A go out and get three to five proposals from different CROs. Right. And then a lot of times the problem with those startups is um, they're like, well, here's our clinical synopsis, but they don't actually have a, a really good uh, clinical protocol, right? So then the CROs have to make assumptions and the CROs make assumptions. And then there becomes this game of, well, making try it, making sure your price is, is not the cheapest, but not the most expensive. So that way yours can get chosen. Uh, and then there's going to be more. And, and so I think what startups don't realize is when you go to multiple CROs to have them bid on work, you better make sure you're giving them very sp specific parameters and that everyone's bidding, you know, that you're comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges, because that happens a lot. And then you get down this path of, well, I, put, I chose a CRO, I'm starting to run the work, and now you have scope creep and, and you know, things are happening and getting more expensive and you kind of go down this vicious circle. So um, I'm really glad you brought some of that stuff yeah, up. Yeah, no, I mean, the, and the point you make are very valid points and that happens way too much of the time. Probably best advice I could give a manufacturer there is, is go to the first CRO that you want to talk to. Ask them for their checklist of all the things, that all the information you need to provide to them for them to be able to provide a bid. On every single item you've got on the checklist, you've got to think about what parameters are there. So yep. you say how many sites. Don't give 15 to 20 because 15 to 20 means nothing. Because what 15 to 20 means is for you it means 15, for the CRO it means 20. It's like if you say something's going to take two to four weeks, they'll, they'll base it on four weeks and you're thinking it's going to take two weeks. <laughs> exactly. Don't do broad parameters. Give them a number. And it doesn't matter if that number is what it ends up being later. It doesn't matter if it ends up being four or six or 12 or 10. Just make sure it's the same number for each zero. And only on that basis can you evaluate it. Once you've evaluated the zero, the, the zero is based on apples to apples, then you can start negotiating with the zero. And that's what people yeah. don't realize. They're trying to negotiate before they actually have the baseline set. Get the baseline set very firmly first. Yeah, great, great. So so let's move on from the CRO discussion. I think that was um, really helpful and something I really haven't covered on the podcast just yet, um, just because, you know, I was still at uh, LabCorp and, and, and hadn't left there yet. Sure. Um, so, so anyways, I, I really appreciate that. Let's talk about Smart Trial. So Smart Trial is not a CRO, correct? Um, yeah, that's right. Right. So, so uh, give the listeners just a, an intro into what Smart Trial does. And then, you know, I, I'd be curious from a personal standpoint, why the switch, right? Because like you said, it is a small, small community. And, and uh, sometimes, you know, people get into a CRO and, and they stay in that industry forever. So curious, what does Smart Trial do? And why'd you make the switch? So, I'm going, to, I'm going to answer that slightly differently from how you might expect. So the first thing is, um, what is Smart Trial? Smart Trial, at its core, is an electronic data capture company, an EDC um, software as a service uh, provider using cloud-based services. Um, I say at its core because about five or six years ago, it took a very strategic decision that it's going to address the medical device market, medical device and diagnostics. And... There are some very specific reasons why that's a very different market than the um, than the pharmaceutical market. You find almost every EDC product has been designed with the big shiny 
um, pharma world as its biggest yeah. customer and, sure and, and med devices secondary. And this was the frustration I had at the CRO I was at. It was a great CRO I was at. I've got no criticism of them. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of their revenues, and when I say vast majority, I'm talking upwards of 90-something percent, and I'm being very vague because it's a public company. Um, <clears throat> but the, the, the revenue differential between drug and device is so massive to the point that you could have your whole device business being less than one phase three clinical trial, drug trial. So when you look at that, you've got to look at how organizations allocate resources, allocate training, allocate everything else. And the device world is different. The device tools required in data management, for instance, are not the same as you need in drug studies. You don't have a requirement for a post-market clinical follow-up type setup within the European regulations, for instance, for drugs. You do have um, studies that are required as, as commitment studies from the authorities, but you don't have the same thing as a PMCF where there's a, a requirement for continued acquisition of data, which is both um, to show safety and continued effectiveness and the continued um, economic benefit of using it because it's great to say it's effective, but in five years' time, the technology could be sold that there are 50 things out there that are much better. You have an obligation under the new European regulations to collect continual data on your products. And you really need the right tools to be doing it. They need to be the right, the right size tool, if you like. They need to be um, appropriately scaled for what you're doing. They need to be validated. You know, one of the big things that's come out of the European regulations is a requirement for surveys. And those aren't just patient surveys. There's, there's surveys of physicians. When you've got somebody who's using a... a medical device of some sort, you need to say, well, did that work in the last procedure you had? Was there something you wanted to report back? Did you want to give information back to the manufacturer? Did you want to feed something, feedback to them, a negative experience you had? And all these kind of things arise that, that don't necessarily happen in the drug world. And you need the correct tools to be able to do them in the, in the, in the device world. And I think I had a lot of frustration that I would, you know, as the new regulations came about, we, I was doing global road shows where we're going, you know, as I say, global, Europe, US, um, Asia, and we were talking about the change in regulations and about how we would be addressing them. We get very specific answer, you know, questions about how we'd be managing these situations. And I very boldly was telling customers that we understood the problem, we understood what needed to change, we understood how it was going to change and so forth. But when it came to it, the inertia within my own organization and the fact that we're so small relative to the total business um, was very, very hard for me to get anyone to actually make those changes that I've been telling the world we needed to make. <clears throat> so a little bit of personal frustration there. As I say, no criticism of the organization because it was a great organization. Um, but it was personally frustrating. And when I had seen the potential of smart trial as an organization of the products they had of the understanding they had of the requirement and the way they delivered it it was quite apparent to me that this was a great opportunity and the fact that they hadn't set up operations in the us yet and were only operating in europe you know focused on the eu requirements but their software is as applicable to running studies in the us as it is in anywhere in europe or in asia or anything like that <clears throat> they have multiple um language modules so that it can work in different countries with different requirements when you're doing a, 
a patient reported outcome and EPRO type solution, you can't ask the questions of the patient in, in English if they're in Denmark or something like that. Um, and and they, they've just got so many of the smart things that are required to be able to do device study specifically. And one of the latest things that, that you know, the world has got, has embraced very strongly because of um, the pandemic is the use of e-consent. And e-consent isn't just about um, a remote consenting process, because quite frankly, remote consenting itself has to be treated very, very carefully because you have a, a real obligation from the physician to ensure that the patient is consenting based on being informed. That's what informed consent is about. So you can't just have a checkbox like signing an agreement when you're buying buying something and it says, have you read the terms and conditions and you check it, yes. We don't need e-consent to do that, but what we do need consent to do is make our trial procedures so much more efficient. When you're doing a single blood draw um, diagnostic study and you're seeing 5,000 patients, we used to send monitors out to site for the simple purpose. Almost the only reason to go to site was to verify consent because it's something that the FDA particularly, but all regulatory authorities are very strong on is making sure patients have consented to what you're doing. So we spend fortunes on that when you could do it with an electronic signature that quite frankly is, is more secure because there are better ways of verifying that it's actually the patient who has consented versus anyone else signing a piece of paper. Um, so it's things like that, that that really appeal to me. And the focus on efficiency and just cutting out the chaff and the way and getting to the product and getting to doing what needed to be done quicker and more efficiently. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is there's a lot to unpack here. So um I actually did have uh, John Borgensteinson on from a smart trial and on episode 72. And he, he, he also gave a really good overview of, I believe he's the co-founder, correct? Correct. He's one of the co-founders. Yeah. Too. Yeah. He gave a really good overview of why, why he find founded the company and, and that kind of mission. So, so for the other listeners who want more information, episode 72 is great with John. Um, the other thing, a couple other things you, you kind of talked about, um, personal frustration, right? That, that same here, right? I had the same thing, right? So, so I came from, from, from NAMSA, um, which was a medical device focused CRO, right? So that's all we were playing in was that space, right? Um, and then when I had left and, and went to Covance, which is now owned by LabCorp, again, fantastic organization, right? I, I loved working there. Um, but for me, who loves device were a rounding error at the end of the day right um and that's just just kind of where we were um but 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 still you know it's 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 great to see software um that is built for device right because there are like to your point there's so many systems that device companies use that device is a component but it wasn't built for device right yeah. um so so i i love seeing that and there's so many groups that um you know uh i've i've worked with here in the past and specifically that have been a guest of project medtech that really devote so much time uh to medical device and it, it's, it's awesome to see so so i i, I share the same yeah, personal frustration, but then also passion for uh, companies that focus in on that because 
nothing is more offensive to a startup company than when you say, well, yeah, I mean, your, your path to market is just like drug. And you're like, oh my goodness, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> let yeah, me tell you, let me tell you why. When the first document goes to the, goes to the sponsor and it says pharmacovigilance on it. Yeah. It never gets <laughs> oh my God. It's never gets <laughs> uh, Adam, you are, you are, you are hitting on uh, a, a rough, a, a sore spot for me there. <laughs> <laughs> lots of people, trust me. Yes, I know. So um, you brought up e-consent. Yeah. I, I want to kind of transition into hybrid studies, which you sure. were kind of touching on there. Um, you know, big part, uh, uh, the pandemic was, was, was not great, obviously, but, but from a, um, from an innovation standpoint, it did pull a few things forward, right? It, it made CROs and, and other people running clinical trials have to think outside the box on how they're going to continue to capture patient data, continue to run the clinical study so that these products and, and, and devices can get to market. So hybrid studies was one of those things that was kind of born from that. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about what hybrid studies are? And then I, yeah, I'd love to learn about uh, how smart trials contributing to those. Sure. Um, so, so I think that's a great question because I think there's, there's been, you know, the, the concept of a decentralized clinical trial and DCT and 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 that is to some degree over the last couple of years become really big buzzwords in the industry. Doesn't mean they're not valid, but at the same time, the world isn't all about um, decentralized clinical trials. What I think we're really trying to say is let's come up with a more efficient way of doing things that we've gotten into the habit of doing the same way time and time again without bringing in technologies to improve them. Back in the early 2000s, we decided that using a three-part NCR form was really not the best way of collecting data for a patient. And we, we started getting smart and, and um, instead of double data entering, we now started scanning. And then we said, well, instead of scanning, why don't we put it directly into a system? And then we created EDCs. And this, this kind of process of going from a, a very, very paper-based to an electronic system didn't take many years, but it, it did take a while to to get where it where it got, and then it kind of stalled for some time. And, and quite frankly, there hasn't been a lot of change in this, this industry um, in five or ten years. And then the pandemic rolls along, and suddenly we work out that we can do e-consent. Well, quite frankly, we should have been doing e-consent ten years ago. We had no driver to push us to do it. And, you know, e-consent as an example, and it's not the only one, there's, there's other ones in the industry as well, is an example of, of as, I, as I alluded to before, why have something in paper that's got to sit in a file, that's got to be maintained by somebody physically in a folder, file system, whatever it happens to be at a clinical site. And I mean, I, I've been to clinical sites where there's just walls and walls and walls of, of folders um, trying to... And, and, and filing cabinets and stuff with all the paper records that really and truly, if we just made it electronic, you wouldn't need all of those records. And e-consent specifically is not something that people should think of as being a remote, um, remote activity. I'm in favor more than using it remotely of using e-consent within the clinical site. Patient comes in, has the discussion with the physician. The physician explains everything that that study means to the patient, explains it in the context of the document in front, the informed consent document, and 
merely uses the electronic system to sign the document electronically so that it's immediately available in a file. Um, it can be de-identified. There's ways of doing that. Um, and, and so that's, that to me is where we've got to start thinking about how technology is going. It's, it's not necessarily going directly to patient, although you can do things at home that you couldn't do before. I think when we talk about, high, um, about DCTs, what we really mean is we really mean hybrid studies. And I think when we're talking in the context of med device, we also have to remember that when we're talking about those sort of class 2B in Europe, class 2, class 3 um, studies, we're talking implantables. The biggest part of the device market that needs clinical evidence, I mean, it all needs clinical evidence, but the biggest volume and the hardest to gather is obviously going to be your more complex studies and your, your 2B and 3 um, class 3 studies, devices. One of the most important things to remember is that where device differs significantly from the drug world is drugs can be remotely provided to customers. Very often, I say customers, I mean patients, very often when you, you get a prescription, you'll go to the pharmacy and you'll go and pick up your prescription. Um, you may have an online service. You may be, you know, Amazon now starting to look at, at doing this kind of thing online and so forth. And so from a decentralized perspective, it's easy enough to do that. When you're looking at class two, 2B and class three devices, you're talking implantations. So the patient has to go to the site anyhow. They have to go to the doctor or more often to the hospital to where the implantation is being done or where the knee operation is being done or where the, the facial filler is being provided to them, whatever it happens to be. And so there's a physical component to it that isn't as obvious in drug. And for that reason, um, I think You'll never have a truly decentralized trial where patients are able to do everything from home. There may be one or two exceptions to that. But I think generally speaking, what we're talking about is not keeping the patient away from the office, away from the, the clinic or the hospital or whatever it is. I think what we're talking about is having an infrastructure where we can be more, more efficient with mainly the patient's time and effort. And the reason that's important is if you want patients to continue to be in your trials, you need to make it as easy as possible for your patients. So by way of example, you may do a hip implant, but then you do a physical follow-up in the, in the clinic three months later, another physical follow-up three months after that. And you might want to follow that patient for five years, but you don't need them to come in every time because sometimes it might just be getting to a point of having an interview with them and, and getting some pain scale information or getting some comfort information or whatever it happens to be. And it's ridiculous to expect their patient to now come into a clinical site, which obviously during a pandemic happens to be a, the best place you can possibly go if you're trying to get sick, um, you know, contaminate yourself amongst all those people that are at the hospital because they're sick in the first place. Um, and, and, you know, make it easy for the patient where they don't need to come in for a, a follow-up visit, for instance. And it's these efficiencies we should be using in studies. They'll keep the cost of the of running the study down. They'll keep our enrollment rates higher. I'll keep our, you know, and our, our enrollment rates and hence our retention rates will be higher. Um, and at the end of the day, make the patient experience better. They, everyone wins. There's nobody who's losing out there. Um, and... You know, I think that's where we need to start driving technology and we need to be, when we're talking about direct, you know, um, direct to patient, 
when we're talking about decentralized clinical trials, when we're talking about hybrid studies, we shouldn't necessarily be going to the extremes on any one of those. We should be working all of them into the into the formula and coming up with the most efficient way of delivering that clinical study. Yeah, no, I uh, I totally agree. I mean, it's 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 a <clears throat> it's a really hot topic, um, and I think you know the the med device industry is very adopting of it, right? Uh, but 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 it it, it kind of feeds in with what was hot in in med tech in general, right? It was a lot of these digital health platforms that uh, enable, you know, like specifically like physical therapy, right? I mean, if you think about like that as one area, right? And the only reason I say that is because my wife's a physical therapist. So I'm aware of some of these, these new devices, but, sure. but things that enable you to do physical therapy at home, right? And have, but still have some oversight from the physical therapist who's in the office, right? Um, you know, it just kind of makes sense. It makes things easier. So if, if, if it's easier to take part in a clinical trial, more people are going to sign up. Great. That helps enrollment rates, right? It helps, it helps drive down the cost of healthcare. It's, it's a win-win for everybody. So sure. um, I'm glad you brought a lot of those topics up. Um, one of the other questions I had, well, well, first of all, is there anything else related to hybrid studies that, that we covered that you wanted to comment on? I don't think so. I think one of the, I, the only other component, if you like, and, and may, maybe this is, maybe I'll, I'll just talk very briefly, if you don't mind, about the types of data you acquire. And sure. I, think, I think it's relevant because there's kind of a health economics aspect to this and, and so forth. Yeah. One thing that, that I think manufacturers forget when they're, when they're starting in their quest to start generating data is they lose sight of what they need the data for. Everyone thinks they need the data for regulatory approvals. In my mind, there's four reasons for data, four main buckets, if you like. Okay. The first one that's forgotten, it's probably the most important, and that is really the economic one, the, the very early economic one, the data you need to show that you it's actually worth investing another cent in that product. And people forget about that. There's an economic side, and I'm not talking health economics here. I'm talking about just the fact of business. Does it make sense for me to continue developing this device? I've seen manufacturers sink tons of money into products that are just going nowhere. And, and, you know, the drug world is really good about failing fast. They're really good about saying, if it's going to fail in phase one, we need it to fail quickly because then they don't pour the money into it. I'm not convinced that the device world is, is quite as good as, as the drug world in terms of killing things. So that, that's the first set of data. The second set, absolutely, regulatory data we have to have. We've got regulations to pass. We've got to be able to prove that the products are safe and, and effective. Um, so that's got to be considered. The ones that have most often forgotten, first of all, is, is who's paying for it? So you've got reimbursement considerations. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm frequently hearing about is, well, we, we had a product um, that we developed back in 2005. We revamped the product in 2017. We did a 510K submission based on the, the predicate product, which was the product we manufactured in the first place. And now we have our product on the market but nobody's buying it. We can't get reimbursement for it, things like that. And there's two fundamental problems. There's two types of data. One, of, one is the, the information you need to get your payers to buy and, and to say, yes, we'll pay it. Organizations like NICE in UK that will say, you know, that's, that's a good economic proposition. Yes, we're gonna support that. Yes, we'll put it on the registry and, register and yes, you can start supplying it to UK hospitals. Um, but then you've also got adoption. So 
you may have got nice to say yes we'll pay for it you may have got regulatory approval through the uk authorities to sell your product there <clears throat> but then you still may have a problem when nobody's using it well why because you have that product that you haven't shown to the market because you haven't done um, the right kind of studies written the right papers generated the data that pers persuades the physician or the hospital healthcare system or whoever it happens to be that they should adopt your product in place of something else um, and so i think if you think about these sets of data they're not massively different there are different nuances to them there are different bits of data there are different ways and places to record that data but most of this data can be collected in your first in human early feasibility and pivotal type studies and, and one of each of those instead of having to get your product to market and then doing another three three studies to then get all these other aspects that you haven't really thought of before covered yeah, it's a good point, Adam. I mean, I was just going to bring that up before you finished it there. It's, it's, we see it happen a lot. And I'm sure you have too, right? Is companies focus in on two out of four of these or one out of four of these. And, um, and then they have to go back and collect more data. And when they could have probably done that all in one fell swoop and, and not wasted money, right? When you're collecting, you know, collecting different endpoints is not expensive, right? But rerunning a clinical trial, that's exactly. expensive. And, exactly. and that's that's where you run into the issue. I mean, the interesting thing about who's paying for an adoption, um, you know, that that is tough. Um, uh, market, you know, getting, getting more end users to adopt your product is hard. So, um, you know, I, I think it's often overlooked because the startups just aren't, focused on that yet they're not focused on you know well of course people are going to buy it because in my you know pre-market research so 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 and so said they would do it and 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 they're a pretty good barometer but then i think they underestimate when push comes to shove it's like okay are they actually going to buy this now and start using it and 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 who is who is that end user you know i think that is oftentimes something that is um missed for some of these startups is you know, as a classic example, uh, you know, they'll assume that, uh, okay, well, great. I got a key opinion leader from the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, and John Hopkins. I should be set. Well, great, maybe, but are those three institutions the one who's going to be doing most of your procedures where your device is used? Maybe it's community hospitals. Maybe it's a surgical center. I mean, I think that's where people miss the boat sometimes. And then they're actually collecting data that doesn't even really matter. Um, so you brought up a lot of good points there. If, if I could add something to that, Dwayne, I think one of the things that I've, I've found quite interesting is, you know, when you look at the the medtech startup space, there's a strong desire to get to proof of concept, um, shoestring it as best you can, maybe get some funding along the way, and then do your very best to offload it with a great big um, um, sort of, bonus reward type program to a strategic. So, you know, oh, sure. you're looking yeah. at selling it to Boston Scientific when you've you've hit your first pivotal, maybe maybe you've got an approval, maybe you haven't. But there's, there's very often that view that, well, commercialization will be done by the strategic when we're bought by the strategic. They'll understand the value that this will be to the industry. They'll know that this is a unique treatment for this. They'll understand it, <clears throat> but they have the expertise. They have the their arms and legs and 
expansive organization to be able to get it out there. So they think, well, I'll leave the commercialization to them. Problem is if, if you're talking to a, a strategic and they're looking at this and saying, well, I can't actually sell a single product until I've done that, that um, study, had the papers written, started getting the material out there into the market that the physicians and the hospitals and everyone else are going to use to make decisions to buy the product. If, I, if it's going to take me a year or longer to get all of that in place before I can start bringing revenue in on the product, I'm really not interested in buying it from you. So it may look like you've saved some money by not doing it now and then you can leave that later for the strategic to worry about. That's probably the very best way of undervaluing your business. And that is that I have seen it time and time again where companies have sold out way under the value they could have because they didn't have the basic evidence. And it's not that they didn't have it and somebody else can get it. It's the time cost of not having that for so much time. And yeah. um, it's it gets missed way too often. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point, Adam. Um, so I, I, I was actually going to ask about those four pillars uh, that you had brought up. So, so this will lead into my next question pretty well here, which would have been the first part of that question is something we preach at, at Project MedTech is thinking about having a, a well, a, a well-defined as best as you can plan, right. Um, and, and understanding, trying to understand at least, right. There's always going to be unforeseen potholes, but, but trying to understand, you know, where the hurdles are going to be um, and how do we address these throughout the process. And, and so something we talk about a lot is, okay, you know, you, you have to understand your IP strategy. You have to understand your regulatory strategy, your reimbursement strategy and your clinical strategy. Right. Um, and, and there's a handful of other things too. you, you know, your, your fundraising strategy, voice of customer, all that good stuff. But clinical is really hard to think about early for startups. Um, what, what is your best advice for startups, right? I mean, we, we talked about the four pillars, but how do, you, how do you think about this early on so that you, you can plan for it appropriately in those budgets and in, those, in the pitch deck and whatnot and, and in your commercialization strategy? Um. That's an interesting question. Again, I, I hate to say this, but it is dependent very much on your on your device and so forth. Yeah. First thing you have to think about is how long is it going to take to get your product to market? Um, and what are the steps involved? Because you've got to think about where your technology stands against other technology today. I'll give you an example of that. We had some interesting discussions with some of the most amazing concepts and thoughts of products but some of these products really advanced um products like left ventricular assist devices and things like that where they've got very unique novel ways of doing things they're in animal studies now but then they're looking at it saying well we're going to have to do a first in human before we can finish the first in human we're going to have to do at least one year's follow-up we're then going to have to do an early feasibility study it's going to take us at least six months to enroll it we're going to have to take at least you know, two years of patient data from there. Then we're going to go to a pivotal and it's going to take a year to enroll. The study's going to take a year, but then we're going to have a five-year follow-up. And then you look at the, the calendar and suddenly find out that this product that you're looking at 
isn't going to hit the market for 11 or 12 years. And then you've got to start looking at it saying, okay, where is my technology going to be if I get my product on the market in 12 years time versus where I am today? Because you may look around the marketplace at the moment and say, well, there's nothing else out there. But just imagine where we've come in 12 years. It was about 12 years ago, just a little over 12 years ago, that the um, the iPhone was released. <laughs> you know, that just, that's the first crazy. iPhone today with right. your medical device and then thinking that you've got a competitive product on the market later. So really, it's there's some compelling reasons to think about, A, is it viable in the first place? B, you can't afford to get sequential information if you can get parallel information. You can't. You know, the drug world only works that way. You do your phase ones, you do your phase two, you do your phase three. You've got to be smarter than that with device. The device lifespan is way too short to take the same sort of approaches. Yeah. Well, Adam, you just kind of blew my mind there a little bit <laughs> with the with the iPhone release. I, you know, you don't really realize how long ago 10 years is until you kind of put it in perspective for something like that. Um, and, and, and really, if you look at most data, it tells you product adoption takes about 10 years, um, you know, for, for your product to actually be used in the chain of treatment or, or whatever you want to describe it as. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that insight. I've never given that much thought before. Um, is there any other key pieces of advice that, you know, if, 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 if I'm an entrepreneur, I have this idea, I'm about to embark on my first med tech startup company. Um, you know, you've, you've given a lot of great advice so far. Um, but if there was anything that you haven't mentioned yet that, you know, I should know before I got started, what would it be? I think, I think something that this isn't so relevant. Well, it's relevant to any any person in this business, um, but not as relevant in my current role as my last role. But one thing I think really needs to be understood, medical diverse startups um, have got the mission of getting their product to market, and they have the mission of getting their organization funded and sold. Now, the funded and sold sounds selfish, but if you don't have funding and selling in the way that we do in the United States, you wouldn't have the innovation. If you didn't have the innovation, we wouldn't have the treatments today that we have for patients. So while it sounds like a, you know, nasty capitalist plot, at the end of the day, it's that threat of a golden pot at the end of the rainbow that is what drives us to have the treatments we have today that we didn't have 10 years ago or 20 years ago and so forth. So I think one of the things that, that startups really need to get right, first of all, have the right person as your CEO. <clears throat> you may be the most brilliant heart surgeon on the planet. You may have written 5,000 papers. You may be the person that everyone in the industry goes to, but that doesn't mean you know how to run a company. That's the first thing. Second thing is that I think is really critical is understand that the CEO's role is to enhance the value of the company. That's his primary role. He serves the shareholders. He serves the VCs. He serves the, the angel investors, the family and friends who are putting in their hard-earned cash into a really risky startup type situation. 
That's his role. And then he really needs to make sure he defines a chief operating officer, be it by that title or not, it doesn't really matter, but a chief operating officer who's going to do things and make them happen. And then they've got two focuses. One is on the focus of getting the business to where it needs to be, adding value to the business. And the other is the product and making the product work. And too many times you get the same person doing both and therefore one part of that isn't done properly or because of the, the founding nature and the pride behind find, founding something, um, there's kind of that Captain Invincible view where if I can come up with a product this smart, I can run the company to do it. Well, if that, that's not your skill set. That's not your skill set. You need to recognize that. So I really think that, that looking at that carefully, and, and when, we, when I've looked at companies that have struggled to get funding and you're seeing the same person going to the same meetings, four or five years down the line, the same position, still haven't got funding for the product. You've got to look at that and say, well, it's either a bogus product or the investors have got no confidence in management. And the problem is generally the products are okay. It's the, it's the trust in the management. So as a, as a founder of a startup, look very carefully at yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I the right person to be doing the role I'm doing? Maybe I should be the chief scientific officer and I need somebody else to be my CEO whatever it happens to be. But I really think that early on do that because it'll be too late when you start talking to the investors because you've lost their confidence if you're the wrong person. Great. Adam, that's uh, awesome advice. So um, hang on for one minute. Um, we'll, we'll chat offline and um, and turn our videos back on. Uh, but uh, uh, for those listening, I'll include a link to Adam's LinkedIn in the show notes. There'll also be a link to Smart Trials website as well. So that way, depending on what platform you're listening on, just look up or down an inch. You can click on the link and it'll take you right there and you can connect with Adam or, or reach out to Smart Trial. Um, but, but Adam, really appreciate your time today. Really appreciate your insights. Um, and I, I love, I love the advice uh, that you gave at the end. So thank you so much for your time today. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dwayne. I've thoroughly enjoyed my conversation today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.